Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview Michael Medeo, a postdoc with Microsoft Research working with the FATE, which stands for Fairness, Accountability, Transparency, and Ethics in AI Research Group. Michael works at the intersection of human-computer interaction, AI, machine learning, and public interest technology, where he uses human-centered methods to understand how we might equitably co-design data-driven technologies in the public interest with impacted stakeholders. Michael, with other collaborators, authored the paper, Co-Designing Checklists to Understand Organizational Challenges and Opportunities Around Fairness in AI, which is one of the major focuses of this interview. Specifically related to that paper and beyond, in this interview we cover some of the following topics, including what does it mean to co-design technologies? What is a checklist when it comes to the field of AI ethics and why is it so important? What's the problem with AI ethics principles released from large tech companies? Is there a problem? And how do we fix it? What are the limitations of using checklists for fairness? And what are the alternatives? This interview is actually particularly special to Dylan and I because it has been in process for months now. And we actually started planning this interview before we even launched the podcast back in April. So Jen Wortman Vaughn, who we recently had on the show, tweeted in January about how this paper was accepted to Kai and won one of the best paper awards. So after we read the paper, we just had to reach out to all of the different co-authors on the paper, including Hannah Wallach and Luke Stark and, of course, Michael Medeo who this interview is with, and it took quite a long time for all of us to finally get together just due to COVID craziness, but we are so excited that we finally got the scheduling figured out and were able to sit down and chat with Michael just about what the heck checklists really are. (laughs) So without further ado, we are so excited to share this interview with Michael Medeo with all of you. We're on the line today with Michael Medeo. Michael, how are you doing today? Great, great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's great to have you here. Uh, I was wondering if we could just get started with a little bit of who you are uh, and your story and, and your journey to the work that you're doing right now. Absolutely. So I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Microsoft Research uh, in our research group on fairness, accountability, transparency, and ethics in AI. So my, my background, my uh, by, by trainings, I have a PhD in human-computer interaction, uh, but originally I was a teacher. I was a public school teacher uh, for a number of years, and I kind of made my way obliquely into uh, research and thinking about questions of uh, access to uh, technology for learning and teaching, and then thinking a little bit about how do we design those in, in human-centered ways involving students and teachers and parents. Uh, and then sort of widening the scope out, thinking a bit more broadly around questions of, of equity and ethics and fairness, uh, which uh, led me here to Microsoft Research. And I, I saw before that you were a high school teacher in your previous career. So did that have anything to do with your interest in uh, influencing people's access to data literacy and then also people's access to technology in general? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so I was a, a public school teacher at the high school level, and and at the time, so this was about 2012. Um, I was realizing that that 
um, children were, were, were coming to school with more and more technology and had access to it at home. And so wanted to think about how could we actually use these to uh, allow students to continue learning uh, on their own and, and pursue learning in, in different ways. And as a teacher, wanting to uh, use those to improve my teaching also. Uh, so that, that led me into uh, computer science and, and HCI research. But I, I think one of the questions that for for me, like as I, I went back uh, to, to grad school, went to a, through a master's program and then to a PhD, uh, I kept running into these questions like, well, how do we design uh, these education technology systems Yeah, in, in a way that, that gives learners uh, some agency and some control over their learning and over the kinds of technologies that are used in their learning process? And are there some technologies that uh, may be harmful or may not be beneficial or that students might not want, even if uh, they might have, uh, if they improve their learning outcomes on a test, uh, if the way that they go about doing that uh, is undesirable or is inequitable or maybe allows some students to perform better than others, uh, what are these sort of larger unintended consequences? So for uh, we when we we ask people you know their stories every time on the show like every episode and uh the one thing that we've learned is that there's no pattern right so like everyone comes on and is like i have a really unique story about how i got here um and uh that's the case for you as well and coming in from a second career and, and i myself also came in from a second career that someone might think is totally disconnected from this ai ethics or responsible tech space uh, but actually there's a lot of skills that are transferable and so i'm wondering uh before we get really uh, a deep dive into your research if you could talk a little bit uh, for those folks out there who maybe are teachers right now in the public school system who are looking to get into the responsible tech or AI ethics field, like talk a little bit about either what that journey was like or maybe like what barriers, but also what gifts uh, you think that that first career has brought into this work for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think for me, uh, it was a lot of a lot of reading and um, following some some uh, academics and looking at, at who was doing the work that was inspiring to me um, and then uh, thinking about what I would be excited about doing in the short term. So, so initially, I actually went into uh, grad school thinking, OK, I'll come out, I'll, I'll work uh, at an ed tech company or be a sort of like learning engineer at, at, at a school system. And then realizing that like in this process of uh, uh, taking courses on, um, system, on technology design and, and, and education technology, you know, sort of opening up all of these other lines of questions. And for me as a teacher, so coming in having read Paulo Freire and, and uh, uh, this idea of, of um, learners being uh, drivers of the learning process, right? Active participants, that they're not just sort of uh, these like empty receptacles or banks to be filled with knowledge. Uh, and then sitting in on, on some of the like courses where um, some of the rhetoric around learning is sort of so very much this, this, this um, uh, idea that, that learners, that there is this sort of content that learners need to know and, they, and, and this technology will sort of disseminate it to the learners. So this sort of tension, um, and I think also this very techno-deterministic view of learning um, that uh, if we have technology, if we have a problem, we can solve it with the technology that we have at hand, right? The sort of like uh, hammer and nail idea. Like if you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you have uh, an algorithm, everything looks like it's a problem that can be solved with an algorithm. And uh, quite frankly, that's 
often not the case. Um, and so, and, and I think for, for you, you were asking about like what was helpful. I think awareness of the larger social system and political and historical uh, legacies and issues and factors in education specifically, I think was so, so helpful and uh, gave me such a, a, a helpful perspective in, in conversations around ed tech and, and technology design. So one of the reasons why we wanted to talk to you specifically is because of this amazing paper uh, that you and your colleagues in the Fate Group had published uh, entitled Co-Designing Checklists to Understand Organizational Challenges and Opportunities Around Fairness and AI, right, in AI, um, which which is a lot of really great words, but is also a lot of words. <laughs> um, and uh, I, part of this conversation is just breaking that down. Uh, but before we dive into the paper itself, I was wondering if you could talk about checklists. Um, because checklists, it's been this word that Jess and I have heard from a lot of folks about whether they're good or bad or whether there are too many of them. Um, and sometimes I feel like those of us kind of who are in the echo chamber forget to even uh, frame like what the heck a checklist is in the first place and why why did it exist? Why is it a framework, etc.? Could you just say like a checklist 101 in terms of AI ethics and AI fairness? Like what do we mean when we say checklist? Yeah, absolutely. So... I want to answer your question in kind of a roundabout way um, and maybe ha help give some perspective on, on what, what motivated some of this research. So about five years ago now, in between a, a master's program and a PhD program, I was doing this, this uh, data science for social good fellowship uh, out of Georgia Tech in the city of Atlanta, where we were working with the Atlanta Fire Rescue Department to help them use some of their data to improve access to fire inspection and other types of services. And, and as, as part of that, and then after that fellowship, when I was in my PhD at CMU, um, I and others was working with were thinking about, well, how do these types of civic data um, reduce or contribute to inequities and in access to these kinds of services, right? Like which communities uh, are, are uh, prioritized in getting access to fire safety inspection services or uh, which ones have historically been overlooked for various reasons, right? And how does that show up in the data? Uh, and this is something that uh, the partners we worked with at the fire rescue departments uh, in both Atlanta and in Pittsburgh raised as issues like uh, certain communities, wealthier communities may have more robust data available and thus the, the models might be better able, uh, might be more accurate uh, because there's, 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 there's more uh, data available and thus with more accurate models, uh, the services might be better prioritized or might be able to pick up on various risk factors uh, for building fire risk and things like that. So that was, that was uh, a couple of different projects, a couple of different questions. But the reason why I bring it up is because as we're going through this process and as the, the data analysts from the city governments, from the fire departments were uh, working with our HCI and machine learning and data science teams, we kept running these questions of like, well, how do we think about these, how, how historical inequities are uh, uh, become perpetuated through uh, predictive models, through the kinds of data that we have access to, right? So these kinds of questions that, that are, are, have been percolating over the last five years. Uh, and 
we one thing we, we were running into like well there are these uh principles and and certainly now in the last two or three years there are many many principles and value statements for what makes uh ethical ai or equitable or, or fair ai but and and others have have pointed out this this disconnect too that these principles uh, are often at such a high level of abstraction that in the day-to-day -day practice for a data scientist or a, a machine learning engineer, um, they're often difficult to, to operationalize, difficult to put into practice. Uh, and so a, um, a friend and colleague of mine, Ken Holstein, who, who did an internship at Microsoft Research uh, the summer before I was there in 2018, uh, him and Hannah Wallach and Jen Wortman Vaughn and others at Microsoft Research, um, did some, some work with AI industry practitioners where they realized that many teams often only realized they had issues with their, their products being inequitable or unfair after the products were out and in, in deployed in the world. Uh, and that's you know, even with uh, having uh, uh, principle statements and, and value statements for what fair systems might mean because in the day-to-day, -day, the nitty-gritty of choosing which data sets, how you process those data sets, right? Uh, decisions, these sort of micro-design decisions that uh, uh, data scientists and ML engineers are making at each step of the process might introduce or, or compound or, or simply overlook uh, issues of, of equity. And so to kind of circle back to that example with the, the fire rescue department, uh, the Atlanta fire rescue department, we were working with them, had access to a commercial real estate data set, um, which had information, for instance, about sprinklers in various properties. And uh, that contributed to making a predictive model of building fire risk more accurate. And this seems great, except that that data set was only available for a subset of properties. Uh, and uh, if, if you uh, have to get, you, know, you, you might guess which, which communities uh, have access to this kinds of data, and often historically it's wealthier communities, and, and there are um, again historical inequities in which uh, in, in marginalized communities or, or um, uh, impoverished communities having lack of access to public services and thus less uh, data sets to, to to train models on. So, right, this is just one example of, of a place in the process where decisions might. Uh, either overlook historical equity issues or, or not. Sorry, so it's maybe a long-winded way of, of circling around to your question um, of why checklists, right? So uh, you, know, you have principle statements, but uh, during the process, it's, it's difficult to identify decision points and um, choices that need to be made. So. Uh, we look to other fields where these types of complex decisions uh, get made in high stakes fields like in medicine, like in aviation, structural engineering, uh, where they use checklists for a variety of purposes. So these are also used in software engineering uh, as well, but for perhaps different purposes. So let me zoom up a little bit. There are different types of checklists uh, that either serve as like a memory aid to remind people to uh, do certain things, like is the landing gear down? Are your uh, uh, flaps raised, right? These, these sorts of things for like for an aviation context. Uh, or in surgical safety, the World Health Organization has put out 
uh, checklists for, uh, for instance, for an anesthesiologist and a surgeon prior to inducing anesthesia, anticipating uh, potential risks or harms to that uh, particular patient, making sure that one, they're just confirming like, is this the right patient and the right procedure for this patient? These types of things. But those assume a set of known risks and known uh, uh, steps in the process. Um, and the checklist in those cases is serves this role of, I mentioned, of memory aid, reminding the practitioners to complete some set of tasks. And I actually think for uh, fairness and, and ethics in AI, it's not quite as, as simple or straightforward. And I think we there is a risk of treating fairness and, and ethics and equity as this uh, fully mapped and known space, and we can reduce it to a set of just binary yes, no questions uh, that are just meant to remind people of things that they should probably already know. When, when actually it's, it's significantly more complex than that. Uh, each sociocultural context might have unique factors, uh, different groups of stakeholders might actually fundamentally disagree on what the intended outcome is. You know, everybody likes to throw around AI for good, but what does good mean? Good for whom? Uh, and who is defining that? Uh, so as we were, were discussing and, and reading and getting literature reviews on these, uh, the ways that checklists get used in, in other fields, um, we, we recognize that there are some fields that are highly complex and highly situated and like locally determined. So for instance, structural engineering, uh, checklists in structural engineering are often used to structure communication between different uh, teams or different members of the team involved. Um, and that might be because soil conditions are different uh, than expected when the blueprint was, was drawn up or, um, and, and maybe you know, the, the foundation isn't quite sitting uh, at the right level than, uh, as they expected when they drew the plans up. So uh, a checklist in that case might connect uh, maybe the uh, uh, engineers who are developing the foundation with people uh, doing a survey of the soil composition and, and things like that. So the, the idea was that if we're, uh, for AI design and, and fairness specifically, checklists might serve a similar role to coordinate communication, to make sure that uh, certain conversations between team members across teams, between teams and stakeholders uh, that have um, an interest in the particular problem or are impacted by the, the systems, that those conversations take what I'm wondering then is if we're talking about like the domain specificity of different checklists and then we talk about AI as one of those domains, I see so many different subdomains of AI. And so how do you make a checklist for quote AI fairness that would work for uh, like medical procedures, loan approval or denial, recommendation, fire department resource allocation? Like is it one checklist? Is it 10 checklists? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. And um, so, so, so let me I guess kind of walk you through a little bit of what we did. So kind of starting with that as sort of the motivation for the research. Uh, so this was uh, work we did uh, last summer in uh, 2019. Uh, and we worked with um, about, about 50, 48 uh, uh, practitioners from a variety of different um, organizations, uh, tech companies, uh, et cetera. 
um, in a variety of roles. So, so some of these, yes, were data scientists and, and ML engineers, but others uh, were, were designers or uh, researchers or even product managers, program managers, um, consultants, or even uh, uh, we also talked with uh, some people who do annotation work or the sort of content editing or labeling uh, work that goes into some of the data. Um, and in part, we were we wanted to investigate well what what are their existing processes for for thinking about issues of of uh, fairness in their products and their systems, uh, what role they might envision checklists might play, uh, but also what uh, uh, concerns they would have about uh, checklists in in their work. Uh, and then we conducted um, co-design sessions uh, and. Uh, of course, if it's design, it involves post-it notes. Uh, so we broke down an AI lifecycle um, onto a, a you know, sort of a wall that had post-its where people could add suggestions for what should go onto the checklist and at which stage or what phase of, of, of the lifecycle, and then comment on other people's and, and suggest others for, for deletion. And so where, what we ended up with at the end of, of the summer research and uh, what we ended up publishing, uh, we did publish, uh, publish the... Uh, the actual final checklist that resulted from uh, these these design sessions um, as a, a supplement to the paper is uh, something that could be adapted or customized by different teams. And I think, um, Jess, you're, you're, you're right on that. We, as, as a, a group of, of uh, researchers, would not want to, wouldn't presume to uh, develop a checklist that would be appropriate for every single domain, for every single use case or application area. Now we had participants from computer vision, from natural language uh, and, and speech systems, from search and information retrieval systems, um, and, and other sort of classification models, uh, different types of models, different types of, of use cases, um, and, and in part to probe on what some of these edge cases might be, like which uh, uh, types of, of uh, prompts or, or questions in a checklist might not work at all for, for your domain or, or for their domain. But at the end of the day, this uh, will need to be customized or, or, or different teams, different application areas will need to develop uh, some type of guided process, uh, or at least um, the, the version that we put together uh, would need to be customized by, by different teams. And this is, this is equally true for, for the medical domain for aviation as well. And there's, there's not just you know, one medical checklist, right? There, there's some for uh, surgical safety for uh, procedures with anesthesia. There's some for intradialytic hypertension, right? There, for, for various procedures. And same for aviation, for different steps in, in the process. There's routine checklists, there's emergency checklists. And even different uh, um, airlines have their own. So uh, this is something that uh, we, we saw when we uh, were doing the literature review that as uh, when, when airlines merge, when different companies merge, one critical challenge is how do they merge their uh, uh, flight, their aviation safety checklists, um, and which items are, are appropriate for different models of aircraft, right? Or for the unique uh, um, cultural and social dynamics of that particular airline, of uh, pilots and co-pilots, and how they work for that particular airline versus another. So these social and cultural uh, factors um, were certainly things on our mind and certainly things we were trying to uncover through the research we were doing, too. You have me sold on checklists. But there are a lot of people who are not necessarily sold on checklists, and I imagine that 
part of the uh, background info and one of the reasons why and motivations for this paper is because this the I, even idea of, of a checklist is still um, there's energy around it right and so I'm wondering what what are I guess what is the research that this paper was in conversation with and for people who uh, take issue with even the concept of a checklist for AI ethics specifically, like what is that side of the argument? Yeah, absolutely. And in, in part, this was responding to uh, several organizations, uh, some companies, some uh, government agencies putting out checklists of their own for data science ethics, uh, for AI ethics, and recognizing that as, as well-intentioned as they were, they often treated ethics and fairness as this, this binary yes, no sort of thinking, this binary, binary thinking, but also treated it as an individual problem and as an individual's responsibility. Um, that is, so a, 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 an individual data scientist might you know, look up this particular uh, uh, company's uh, checklist or, or government agency's checklist and, and go through it on their own and, and address these, these issues as framed as this individual uh, issue. But others uh, in, in HCI research, uh, so Colin Gray is, is, is uh, one researcher who has done uh, quite a bit of work on user experience uh, uh, practitioners and how they think about and, and grapple with ethical tensions and ethical uh, responsibilities in organizational contexts. And so actually this is one thing that we found uh, um, in our research also is that you know, many of the people we spoke with recognized that there were risks to uh, um, fairness, that there were, there were potential biases and, and uh, societal issues that, that were amplified or reproduced in, in their systems. I mean, this, you know, this is sort of part of the, the, the zeitgeist now. But many, many of them articulated that right now in their organizations, the, the, the burden was on the individual to speak up, to say, hey, I think there's an issue here. I think our, our system might um, not perform as well for people of color or for women, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And with that individual responsibility to speak up, there were often social costs and consequences. Either it was the same member of the team who felt like they were always the one to uh, to bring up uh, uh, ethical or, or uh, questions or questions of, of fairness, um, often marginalized members of the teams who felt that they were tokenized by their organizations, and um, and and those social dynamics had often our participants felt that they had career costs if they were always the person who wanted to slow down. We can't ship this product yet because we have to evaluate its. Uh, disparate impact or disparate performance for different groups, well, that's going to cost their, their company money uh, if they're not shipping that product or if they have to collect new data uh, and, and target uh, data, uh, data collection from different subpopulations. Um, so our participants felt that having some kind of organizational framework, organizational infrastructure, some kind of guided process. And that is where we were uh, trying to target with the, the checklist. That would be something that would give members of teams some um, framework to, to latch onto and say, well, wait, 
when you know we're in this meeting here uh, in our design spec meeting, have we asked these questions? Have we considered how our system might uh, perform worse or uh, for different groups of people or um, have, have disparate harm or benefit for, for different groups? Have we met with stakeholders from those uh, populations, from those communities? Have we solicited their input? Have we asked them, do, do they even want this system to exist at all? Um, and you know, it's having some set of questions, some set of checks um, that, that structure those conversations at these different moments, what in the medical uh, checklist research has been called these pause points. So before inducing anesthesia, you pause and you confirm these things. Before incision, you confirm these things. Uh, and so we, uh, through this research, uh, identified with practitioners what some of these points might be, like when they were first putting their their system uh, design specs together and their plans for data collection and uh, before they they launch or before they they ship the product and then what sort of ongoing review might there be? But I you know so I think sorry all all of that to say that that I for us for the practitioners uh, having some framework uh, would help catch issues that might not otherwise be caught in the process. Um, but there is. I think this this concern for our, our participants, for us, for others in the field, that a checklist in either by the name or the way it's designed might reinforce this binary thinking, might reinforce this sort of procedural thinking. I'm like, okay, we we know what the risks to uh, uh, to ethics and fairness are. Let's just go down the list and, and and check them off. And if we're if we have all all the boxes checked, then we're good. When that's uh, uh, almost certainly likely not to be the case. Uh, so. Yeah, I, that's actually, thank you for specifying that because my next question for you is going to be, well, does this mean people just get to check off a box that says like, all right, all these boxes were checked, so check on fairness. <laughs> but uh, it's clear that that's not exactly the case. And, and what I'm wondering if for you actually is, uh, it, it seems like it would be really ideal to incorporate within the machine learning development life cycle, as you were saying before, like, uh, you know, before doctors put anesthesia, anesthesia on their patients, they have this set of checklists that they need to check off. And um, if the same were true with machine learning development, that would be really amazing. And now we have this set of things that can be checked off that are really great to include in the machine learning life cycle to help with these concerns for fairness. So how do we get those enacted in, um, the teams and the development teams that are creating these models and who are making and building this AI. So how do we go basically from theory and this wonderful paper that has been written to practice and basically enact all of the work that was done and, and make it happen? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think that is a crucial question. And I think it's an open one. I, you know, So, so um, I would say in part that these are the recognition that these are socio-technical issues, right? That even though the the uh, the models uh, themselves, the the data used, like those are technical aspects of these systems, but those systems exist in in social contexts, in social settings, uh, where even if in your with your training data and your test data, you haven't identified any performance differences. Okay, well, once humans out in the world are using this. Uh, the use of this system might lead to uh, uh, inequities or might lead to, to um, differential harm or benefits for, for different groups. Um, you could also imagine a, um, 
language system that in uh, isolation, if it's generating language, doesn't, um, the, the developers, the designers might not uh, identify issues, but once it's out in the world and people are interacting with, maybe it's a, a chatbot or a uh, language generating um, model and people are contributing to it, um, then it might uh, respond in, in biased ways. When you look at things like, like GPT-3, for instance, right? This, this uh, language uh, generation system that uh, people are, are trying out and probing on and, and, I, and surfacing some of these um, biases present in the underlying language model. So I think that, that that's one example. There's others of chatbots that have become uh, sexist and racist uh, or, or produce sexist and racist language after people were interacting with them. So, so I think there's many, many things that cannot possibly be anticipated prior to deployment. And the goal for us, and this is a, a longer term goal, is how do we support teams in anticipating as many of these types of harms as possible prior to deployment? Uh, and so there, there's um, research and, and methods from, from user experience, from HCI, from design, things like speculative design and critical design uh, that are intended to engender this kind of, of future-focused thinking of like, what could go wrong here? Uh, and, and even some like academic conferences are uh, requiring authors to be pessimistic uh, and not just have these sort of rose-tinted glasses. So the, um, in the, the uh, ACM, the Association for Computing Machinery, uh, there was a, a group that called for essentially this sort of uh, removing the rose-tinted glasses and, and, and um, encouraging researchers, but also product designers to uh, be a little bit pessimistic. Uh, there's others like uh, Casey Feisler out of CU Boulder and some others who are working on this kind of speculative ethics. Like, how do you... Uh, um, so she, she's referred to these as uh, Black Mirror Writers Workshops. Uh, so how do... Uh, uh, technologists kind of anticipate all the ways their systems could go wrong. Um, and so I, I think it's going to be some combination of the two, right, of, of uh, technology designers in combination with um, stakeholders who are impacted by these systems and uh, working together in this sort of co-design and participatory design process uh, while systems are, are being developed to anticipate the ways they could go wrong and flag potential harms and then ensuring that there is ongoing monitoring, ongoing review of systems once they're deployed, that it's not just left up to like uh, the, the, the telemetry of, of um, scraping data of model performance and these, these sort of business metrics like revenue and speed and things, and maybe even accuracy, but that actually you're, you're conducting maybe more human-centered or more qualitative uh, evaluations of these systems uh, out in, in the field, in the wild. Yeah, this definitely hits close to home for me because, uh, as you already know, Casey is one of my uh, co-advisors for MPHD program, and I love her Black Mirror's Writer's Room uh, exercise. We'll link that in the show notes for this episode. Um, and so based off of that, actually, I'm, I'm wondering if you see 
realistically, pragmatically, but also maybe optimistically, if you see companies like Amazon, Facebook, Google, you know, the, the top five, 10 tech companies and their machine learning teams sitting down in a room and speculating with each other about the harms of their machine learning technologies and wanting to incorporate a checklist like this. Like, do you optimistically see that happening? I would love to. Uh, I, I would love to see tech companies both introducing slowness uh, or, or caution in, into as a value into their design process, right? Uh, that they should stop, pause, and solicit input, get perspectives that they might not have on their teams um, prior to shipping, prior to launching. Um, I think my, maybe the, the, the cynical side of me uh, recognizes that Large companies in a capitalist society are driven by profit incentives. And maybe one way to shift the, the model, shift the conversation, I think that there may be a couple of ways. One might be uh, top down, um, either regulation or standards. Uh, so the, you know, there's, there are standards in other fields. There are these sort of processes uh, and and uh, policies in other fields, certainly you know the the FDA, right? Um, and you could imagine, and others have have called for. I uh, think the, the AI Now Institute has been one of them. Others have called for for similar types of regulatory bodies for algorithms for for machine learning and AI systems. And of course, there's questions like, well, would that sort of live in its own separate agency? Would that be distributed across the different domains that these uh, models and systems work within? Um, how do we, and I suppose we maybe more, more broadly, how do people in communities impacted by the systems affect change for those and, and, and prompt that to regulation standard? And so that I think is where maybe the other lever, or the other side is this bottom up. Um, pressure, whether that is bottom-up pressure just from, so from society at large uh, to critique uh, companies that uh, go wrong. And you can see instances of this with um, data journalists and you know, ProPublica is one great example. Uh, and certainly in uh, uh, authors and people writing about these issues, right, Sophia Noble and Laura Benjamin uh, and, and many, many others um, that I think has sort of popularized the the awareness of these issues, and you're starting to see um, the public responding to that and, and criticism of large tech companies. I think it remains to be seen the extent to which that criticism translates into actual meaningful change and not uh, this sort of just ethics washing where, where companies might, you know, yes, they'll, they'll, they'll put out a principle statement or they might uh, have publicly announced that they have an, an, an ethics board or, or something, but it's not clear how that actually leads to meaningful change in their design process and in the products themselves. Um, and that bottom-up pressure might come from just the public or might come from, from people within the organizations. And you see uh, movements like Tech Won't Build It and No Tech for ICE uh, and some of these tech worker uh, coalitions and, and tech worker organizing to either go on strike to protest decisions from their companies or 
uh, targeting at university. So at, at my university, at Carnegie Mellon, uh, there's a student group uh, called No Tech for ICE that would uh, increase awareness of which tech companies are contributing to, uh, uh, to ICE. And so I think that, that makes, that's one other bottom-up pressure. That's one of the things that we absolutely love about this paper and about your work on checklists is because it does get to the heart of this urgency around AI ethics. And one of the things I've been struck by in this conversation has been the checklists that you're comparing to and drawing from on research. Like you're going straight to the medical world and you're going straight to, uh, you know, airplane design and things like life and death uh, checklists, essentially, like literally, right? Um, And then comparing it to the AI ethics checklist. And so I'm wondering for you, um, what what is the urgency here in terms of AI ethics? Like, can, and we've talked around it a little bit, but in terms of like putting a finer point on why are those the checklists that, that you went to in terms of what what is important here <laughs> when we start designing for AI ethics and really what's at stake? Yeah, I think the, the stakes are incredibly high uh, as AI systems are used uh, to drive decisions and everything from who gets access to medical care uh, to which communities uh, receive which types of public services at what priority, whether that is, for instance, in the case of, of like fire inspections and community risk reduction, um, other examples of like uh, housing rights, right? And uh, uh, tenants' rights organizations uh, advocating against computer vision and facial recognition systems uh, being set up. So this is in, in, in Brooklyn, for instance, uh, in one uh, public housing project. Uh, they were using the... the um, housing project was, was using computer vision or facial uh, recognition to determine who was granted access and, and not. And certainly with all of the issues in, in facial recognition uh, being less accurate for people of color and, and, and women in particular, right, like even determine like who actually gets to, to go inside their, their, their house and, and, and the, the surveillance of people and particularly marginalized communities and historically over surveilled, over policed communities um, that, AI systems can exacerbate those those issues, and they cover them with this sort of veneer of objectivity. Uh, that even whether and if the the decisions made prior to the algorithms may have been biased themselves uh, already, but now oh, there, there's an algorithm involved. Oh, it's data driven. It's evidence driven. This is like the, the rhetoric people use, right? Uh, and uh, then oh well, if it's decisions made by a machine, it must be trustworthy. Um, and that's certainly not the case. So, so I, I would argue that, that the domains that they're being used in are, are high stakes and the opacity, I think, is a critical issue that decisions are made that shape people's lives that those people don't have access to uh, uh, and often are not able to contest or, or have recourse to. So I think it's fairly clear at this point that these technologies are incredibly powerful. And I want to take us back, actually, to something you said at the beginning of the interview, and that um, you, your original research in this space was to design HCI systems that empower the users. And that was even something that was brought up a bit in this checklist paper, too, shifting that power from the model and the engineer back towards the end user and those who are most negatively impacted, especially the vulnerable communities. So do you, uh, first of all, how do you define um, the word radical as as we talk about power and and you're on the radical ai podcast and do you think that this work that you're doing with checklists is radical so yeah i I love that question uh i think for me radical means starting with people first valuing people over profit uh and that takes 
that could take a lot of different forms uh, that, that could take the form of, of questioning whose voices are, are involved in designing technology and AI systems specifically uh, and how historically marginalized groups of people might contribute to, to uh, shaping those systems um, and what form that takes. So uh, I've been thinking a lot lately about this, this question of, of power and organizational power, right? Because I think in, in a research context, in, in HCI research, we love to promote human-centered design and participatory design, participatory research. But in practice, in, in large tech companies and in, in organizations, often people are involved at the end of the process. So they're maybe consult, maybe they're consulted, uh, right? A technology is built, an algorithm is built, and it's, it's given to some group of, of users, stakeholders, and, and, uh, and they're, they're consulted with their opinion of it, rather than uh, bringing them in early, often giving them the power to refuse. Like what, what would it mean for a group of students to say, no, I don't want a online learning platform that tracks my eye movements, uh, for instance, uh, um, to determine you know, where, where my attention is. Am I paying attention to the reading or the teacher or these, these sorts of things? And, and this, is, this is a, a type of, of system model that, that exists. These are out there, right? These are being commercialized. Um, so, so I, I think for, for me, and I think going back to, 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 to my experiences in education and, and as a teacher, uh, the reality of it is that, that the dimensions, the dynamics of, of political power, of social power are such that historically disempowered groups are still not given a meaningful voice in the design of technologies that will impact them. And, and I, I think it's, it's both a question of, of methods, of, of how do we do this? And that I think is where there is significant work in HCI, in the research community. But I also do really think it's it's organizational too. Uh, and, and that is really one undercurrent underneath the, the, the checklist work and the like larger research program around this work is like, well, what does it mean for the organizations to shift their thinking and, and, and how do we, and I think that is the radical piece I'd like to think that that's the radical piece um, of, of some of this work um, is, is introducing this, this friction into the design process, opening up opportunities for, for stakeholders' voices, for uh, community voices in the design process, making it not just acceptable, but actually valued for people on the design teams to raise a flag and, and, and raise awareness of potential risks or threats to fairness and equity um, and then to bring in stakeholders. And again, just going back that like making it acceptable, making a, a, it a part of the process to have an exit ramp and say, look, we, we, we thought this was a good idea to build this thing, but after uh, considering these potential harms, after talking with the people who might be impacted by it, you know, not just the user, uh, if it's um, like if it's maybe not, not, not just the teacher, right? If it's an educational uh, uh, technology, but students, parents, uh, others in, involved in their lives uh, and say, all right, well, we thought it was a good idea. We've invested all this time, but we shouldn't build this because it would actually cause more harm than uh, it would help. As we move towards uh, wrapping up this interview, uh, first, we were just wondering if you could tell listeners where they can find out more about your research uh, and about you if they wanted to connect. And then second, uh, I was curious 
If there was one thing that you had wished that you had known when you started this journey into AI ethics, what that might be? So I think when I started the journey into, quote, AI for social good and data science for social good, I think I would have wanted to have a more holistic view of the theories, of methods, of, of what that actually means. Um, maybe to take a, a more skeptical view, I think. Um, you, you know, I, I, I think going back to the idea of like the rose-tinted glasses, right? Um, as as a, a former teacher, and then you know, going into uh, uh, computer science and HCI and, and then data science, machine learning, and like, oh wow, these technologies are so cool. They could do you know so much good. Let's build them. Uh, at the time, I would have wanted. I, I now looking back, I, I wish I think I had been a little bit more skeptical of the the, the premises and reached out a little bit more beyond the, the the fields of data science of machine learning into some of these more interdisciplinary uh, fields like uh, philosophy, like science technology studies, and um, um, and others, certainly sociology and, and some of the, the domain areas impacted by some of these fields. So I, I think that's that's certainly one one piece. Yeah. Uh, and and yes, you're welcome to uh, <laughs> check out. So that was maybe a little bit of a, of a downer to end on. <laughs> but it, but I do think you know it's it part of the the journey that I've been on the last five, six, seven years in research has been kind of moving through, through and within different communities. And um, I have been so excited and inspired at all of the amazing work that's happening in the research uh, community uh, and within some tech companies. And I think especially here at Microsoft, uh, I, I acknowledge that I am biased because I am working here. Uh, but I did come here for the postdoc uh, for a reason, because I think that um, we, that this lab is doing some really exciting stuff and, and I am really thrilled and grateful to be a, a part of it. So I would encourage you to check out the Microsoft Research um, Labs more, more generally and then specifically the FATE Research Group. Um, and yeah, there's, there's lots of exciting, uh, cool work going on uh, around the socio-technical understanding of how uh, fairness is thought about and incorporated into uh, AI design. And uh, for, for you specifically, is there a website or a Twitter account or, or something you would like to plug for folks who want to follow up with you personally? Sure. Yeah, you can, you can uh, find my website on michaelmadeo.com. Uh, I, I can send that over to you uh, for the show notes as well. We'll be sure to include all of that. And from skepticism to optimism, thank you so much, Michael, for sharing it all. It's really been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. We again want to thank Michael Medeo for sharing with us his expertise on the subject matter of checklists and so much more. But as we begin this debrief, I was wondering, Jess, if we could talk some more about checklists, because I find checklists fascinating. What do you think about checklists, Jess? <laughs> yeah, let's talk about checklists. Checklists are so fascinating. And it's funny because the word doesn't really sound super sexy. Like, it's a checklist, but it's it's really interesting in the field of AI ethics, especially in this paper that Michael was telling us about, because 
the way that they created this checklist was different than so many other checklists that I've made. And also for those who are listening, maybe keep a count of how many times we say the word checklist in this debrief, because I assume it's going to be a lot. But I think the thing that I'm immediately grappling with right now at the end of this interview is something that uh, Michael was actually saying towards the end there. And that's how important it is to get feedback from the people who use and are impacted by AI systems before making decisions about how to design them. (laughs) And that was what was so interesting about this paper is that they had these participatory design workshops and these co-design sessions with people who are actually impacted and harmed by the technology before creating these checklists and these guidelines for the technologists. And it makes me wonder how different technology and especially AI would be if every single time we made an algorithm, we talked to the people that the algorithm was gonna impact before even thinking about designing and creating it. And I think part of that, part of why it gets uh, lost, like when that user-centric experience that we're trying to design for or that artificial intelligence systems or even entire companies that these checklists are trying to express values for, right, uh, to inform the development of these systems. I think where it gets lost is actually in the fact that it's trying to express values and at this, like, high level of abstraction, right? It's like when you're designing a a checklist for your, uh, like, to go grocery shopping, Right. It's like pretty specific. You know, you're going to get bananas, you're going to get eggs, you're going to get milk. Right. But if you add like bananas, eggs, milk, fairness, right, as the fourth thing that you're going to pick up from the grocery store, uh, it's a lot harder (laughs) to to actually get that fourth thing. Um, And so then it's a question of like, what do you do? I mean, in order for it to be like a one page checklist, like functionally, you need it to uh, be abstract enough where it can cover some ground, right? It can't be that specific. And at the same time, you need some level of specificity so it has some level of, uh, of teeth to it, or at least some ability to communicate what you need and, and actually allow engineers or developers or whoever uh, to, to use those values in, in a real world thing. So it's not just ethics washing, it's not just marketing for ethics, but it's actually, okay, here's our values and, and here we're, is how we're going to apply these values into the work uh, that we're doing. But that's the hardest part, right? Oh my gosh, I love that grocery store checklist example. I wish that we had started off the episode with that actually, because that actually makes checklists make so much more sense in my head. Of course, it's obvious we use checklists in our everyday lives. It may be a little bit more difficult to understand when we apply it to, you know, AI engineering and design, but it's definitely the same idea. And this is something I was thinking about a lot while Michael was speaking, especially in the AI ethics community. I feel like we have this tendency to really think abstractly and vaguely about the ethical issues that come up with AI technologies, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because it allows more people to join the community and join the conversation. But if we're talking about issues of racism and sexism and oppression, and we continue to keep these problems at this vague high level of abstraction, as uh, Michael said earlier in the interview, then what does that give to engineers? 
all they're going to do is just get angry at the AI ethics community for saying, well, okay, we get it. Like you're angry, you're pissed at us for, for coding what we're coding, but what do we do? All, all we know is just to sit down in front of this computer and write lines of code and to, you know, take the data and make the model and tune the model and optimize and test it. So where in that pipeline do your uh, levels of abstraction and critique on the ethical conundrums of AI fit into the pipeline that we that we currently work with in our day-to-day -day lives and in our jobs. And that's what I love about checklists too, is because it takes those values, like you were saying, it takes that fairness checkbox. And instead of just saying, make it fairer, make it less sexist, make it less racist, it's saying, no, follow these steps, do these guidelines that we laid out and start to think intentionally about the systems that you're creating. Yeah, I do think that one thing that come, came out in this interview with Michael, too, though, is that uh, not all checklists are created equal, right? Like, there are some checklists that are designed to do certain things, and there are other checklists designed to do other things. And so as much as we want all of our, our industry checklists to be these things that are really helpful and uh, not just smoke and mirrors and, like, actual uh embodiment of values, uh, they're not all like that, right? And I think that we need to hold uh, these companies to high standards to not just have these checklists, right? Because it's it's easy to talk about fairness, and it's a whole other thing to actually design around fairness and implement it. Um, and I think that's where, you know, public policy comes into play and where responsibility and accountability come into play. And really, for all of, uh, all of us who want to get in uh, the heads of, of these companies and their uh, checklists, um, I think we can all, you know, engage in a pretty easy thought experiment of just like naming what our values are, right? Like it could be really tough to just name what our core values are as, as humans, as people in the world. And then uh, to actually think about, okay, well, if I were to list those out and talk about like how I operationalize those values, like that's a hard exercise. That's, that's like a hard uh, thing to do, which doesn't mean we shouldn't hold those companies accountable to do it, but it does mean that uh, it, it's difficult. There's a lot of moving parts here. Yeah, I'll even take your challenge one step further, Dylan, and I will say I'm going to call out right now any engineers and data scientists who are listening to this episode. I encourage and invite all of you to challenge yourselves the next time that you are dealing with a data set or creating a model or tuning a model or testing or whatever it is that you're doing at your job. Don't think of those rows of data as numbers to optimize for, but think about them as people and recognize that what you're optimizing for might not necessarily just be a number on a screen, but it might mean someone's livelihood. And consider how what you do with your code might impact someone in their real life. For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. Tune into our episodes weekly on Wednesdays. And as always, stay radical.